Hey there, you're listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. Today, we are going to talk about the latest, quote unquote, celebrity distraction, the apparent meltdown of Kanye West, who now goes by the name of Ye. While some may understandably dismiss the entire situation as something meant to divert our attention away from other more pressing topics, it seems to me that there is something much deeper and concerning going on here that does deserve our attention. For several years now, I have been reporting on the war on domestic terror agenda, its origins, its evolution, and the development of related policy, particularly during the Trump administration and now the Biden administration. If you fully understand the domestic terror agenda and its antecedents, as well as the role of the U.S. national security state historically in manufacturing terror threats both at home and abroad, the entire situation with Kanye West starts to look very different. It also raises all sorts of other questions, some of which we will hopefully have time to broach today. Joining me today to offer an overview of the domestic terror agenda and how it colors the current Kanye West situation is my friend and colleague, Ryan Christian. I'm sure most longtime followers of me and my work will be very familiar with Ryan, who runs and is the founder of The Last American Vagabond, or TLAV. Ryan and I have been collaborating specifically on this issue of the domestic terror situation for years now. And we've done several videos over the years about this agenda and how it has evolved. And it goes without saying, there is no one I would rather talk to you about these topics than him. So thanks for being here today, Ryan, and welcome back to Unlimited Hangout. My pleasure. Always, always happy to join you. So there's a lot of different points where we could start, but I guess it makes the most sense to discuss uh, first, you know, the whole situation uh, with Kanye West, how that's been unfolding, and then go and add the important context here about what is likely driving, um, you know, the talking points being uh, that are uh, sort of driving public discourse around the whole insanity um, of, of Kanye West right now. And uh, as of, uh, for those listening, we're recording on Friday, December 2nd. So the most recent developments right now in this whole situation around Kanye West is him being banned Again, but this time on Twitter, but this time being banned by Elon Musk owned Twitter as opposed to regular Twitter of yesteryear. Um, and also his uh, rather outlandish interview on the Alex Jones program. So uh, I guess we can start with one of those two things. Uh, so what are your thoughts on the latest there, Ryan? We'll go from there. Well, it's interesting to see how this has developed as, as of today on the second and you know, he so as so it appears it's only a, as it stands a limited suspension, you know, the 12 hour countdown that we've all experienced where you're supposed to delete a tweet, I guess, or punishment. Well, we'll see how that pans out by tomorrow. But the interesting point is where all this is developed to. And I think this really comes down to the core concept of free speech. Right. You know, and really, really the, the genuine concept of whether you're willing to defend the most appalling speech. And, and if you're not, then that's not free speech. And the problem is that today. We're seeing this very, and as, as to your point in your opening there, which you you've been calling out for a very long time, and we've been covering this trans this transition from you know hate speech and medical misinformation to the point to where now even with Biden's executive order and so on, literally arguing words are now violence. Uh, one a representative of Congress actually just spoke on the record saying that you know sticks and stones now actually break your bones, like they're literally making these childish arguments about how this is where we are, and so it's interesting now to see how this has developed. And I'm sure we'll talk about his interview with Alex Jones and so on, but to, to the point of today where he's now on Elon's Twitter and even the engagement by Elon, you can see how this developed. And I was looking through this this morning. So essentially he posted a joking tweet saying this will be my last tweet. And it was like an image of Elon Musk being sprayed with a hose. It looked really unbecoming, I guess. And Elon under that said, that's okay. And then I'm assuming the next tweet 
underneath of which Elon said that one's not okay is the one that he got censored for, which is a Star of David with a swastika in the middle. And my point was, regardless of what your opinion is on that tweet and the images and, and so on, images and symbols are not violence. And this is what they're trying to force in. And he was censored for that. And Elon used, argued in the tweet back and back and forth that that was because he promoted violence. And so this is, brings us to your main point here is that we're at a point now where even Elon Musk is still discussing how hate speech has gone down on the 2.0 everything platform he's calling everything app, the new Twitter app. And everyone seems to be promoting the idea that violence or words are violence. And this affects people like us. Where it, you look back to Biden's executive order, where they discuss things as domestic terrorism in COVID medical misinformation, right? So this is where I'm most concerned is that this is clear that even Elon, where he knows it or not, I think he does, is playing a part in this. And the right is seemingly holding him up as well, some of them as kind of a savior of free speech. And that's clearly not what's happening with Alex Jones, with Ye, with all, where are the doctors that are still censored and so on, right? So I'm sure we could take this a thousand different directions, but that's what sure. I think is most pressing right now. So not let's forget everything else that's happened with Kanye West up until this point and just focus on the tweet that he was banned for. Mm -hmm. So before uh, in, in rather in recent weeks, especially since Elon Musk took over the platform, there has been a lot of pressure from the ADL at the Anti-Defamation League and its parent organization, Benai Brith, to have Twitter adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which, among other things, essentially uh, conflates anti-Zionism uh, and anti-Semitism, yes, mm -hmm. which is very thorny for um, <laughs> numerous reasons, uh, one being that if you criticize the state of Israel, that can be deemed anti-Zionism and thus anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. right? So right. it's sort of protecting criticism of a particular state. So if you, for example, uh, point out, you know, et ethnic cleansing on the part of the Israelis against Palestine, and some people uh, go to lengths to sort of compare how uh, particularly the new government set to come to power in Israel right now, where you have followers of Mayor Kahane, um, who openly call for, com you know, completely eliminating Palestine, right. annexing it and potentially deporting Palestinians outside of Israel, which is obviously an ethnic cleansing campaign if it comes to pass. Um, you know, if you compare that to things that happened in World War II, um, how different you know, having banned Kanye West for this particular image that seems at least I didn't see the image, but the way it's been described seems to imply that the state of Israel uh, acts in a way that is, you know, has features of Nazism. Mm -hmm. Right. If right. you make sort of any of these more nuanced arguments, will you be banned now? Right. Um, and the fact that Kanye West was banned for that particular image, I think, is a, was a stepping stone or could be a stepping stone to Elon Musk adopting the IHRA definition yeah. of anti-Semitism on Twitter. Well, he's already pointed out that he's consulting with the ADL and other, you know, thought leaders and, and stakeholders, as he puts it, right, in, in the same, you know, in, in the conversation of how this will be regarded going forward. And so, that, I mean, th he publicly tweeted about that. So it's not surprising that he would kind of fall in line with that direction. But there's a lot of points to make in all of this. You know, first of all, some people are pointing out, and rightly so, you know, the historical the, his, the history around these symbols and how they're historically not what we think of them as today and how these symbols have been overlapped in the past and Buddhism, you know, whatever. But the bottom line is, as perceived today, is how it's being focused on. But, you know, the problem is that, I, to your point, and I'm glad you brought that up, the, the election, let's say, as Robert wrote about, wrote about for The Last American Vagabond, that 
the, let's just take, for instance, the Jewish Power Party, right, where even the ADL will point out these people are racist, right, openly, and even in the past have been deemed almost to the terrorist level by some of these same people, right, and th these are, this is the group that just got elected into power. Now, if you point out what the ADL says about these groups today, you're called racist. I mean, that's inherently count, that doesn't make sense, right, you're, you're, the bottom line is, it is, when people are pointing out the Zionism aspect, let's say, it's a political party, but then you get called a racist for doing so because they act like, oh, well, you're actually mean this. But see, there's the problem is that there is a world. It's in conflating which, things. Exactly. Yeah. And there is a world in which we're, there are people like us that are actually pointing out the political agendas of a government, not necessarily an entire organization or a grouping of people. And they just and so anybody honest can point out that inside of that people with honest intentions will get wrapped into the argument of anti-Semitism. So that is obviously what's happening in part. And so today, when your point about him and adopting that, I think that's absolutely a given. And I think that's already where it's going with what he just did, right? You, you are arguing that this image is a violation and is violence. And that's kind of the same sentiment that's being spread there. Yeah. So my question is now, after Kanye West gets banned for that image, are people who, who point out the similarities between the ethnic nationalism that's very extreme being promoted by certain people set to take power in Israel right now mm -hmm. to ethnic nationalists of the past of great infamy. Um, is that is it, will they be banned now, regardless of their past actions? You know, I, I, I don't know, but we'd be guessing, but I, I would argue, yes, I would argue it's pretty clear based on where this is going, that that is going to be happening. And it's, it's based on, again, the over overlap with the ADL, but also the previous actions. But that's already been a standing situation on a lot of these platforms for a long time now. Right. Like that's yeah. just offensive. Right. You're not allowed to say these kind of things. You're not allowed to have objective conversations and question the narratives about this, you know, or any number of things today. And I, I think that one's pretty clear. That's my opinion, though. Yeah, and I think it's going to be very bad if this develops into um, a situation where criticism of Israeli government policy or Israeli intelligence becomes a, a censorable offense. I mean, obviously, that's going to be bad for people like you and me. But I mean, you've been kicked off of Twitter how many times? Yeah, seven, <laughs> how many six times or seven, now? I think. Right. So, um, you know, I mean, it's already complicated for for some of us. I'm, it's a miracle that mine's still around, but I think it's because I don't tweet very often. At least that's what I what I assume it is. Uh, but, you know, if, if that comes to pass, it's going to get very dicey to make criticisms of a country that is very influential in geopolitics and in other, um, you know, situations globally. Absolutely. Uh, well, outside of Israel as well. So this is um, they want to scare people you know, away. Right. Yeah. I mean, like so people actually then and this is what and we know this. A lot of people, even independent media will self-censor. Whether we're talking COVID-19, whether we're talking Israeli foreign policy or U.S. foreign policy, people will water down what they're saying so they can, you know, skirt the algorithm or however we defend it today. And that's exactly what they want from us. And that's what that kind of statement does, you know, and we should be able to objectively have a conversation about exactly these things, even when it comes down to the supremacist mentality of some of the people in these countries because of the Zionist direction from this government. That doesn't mean everybody. Right. It's the same point they make about Ukraine. Right. I mean, it's obvious you can see an overlap of very extremist mentality from the government down. And that has influenced a lot of people, both that were there originally and that came from other places. But that doesn't mean every Ukrainian is X, Y and Z. Right. It's just we have to be able to have these objective conversations today. And that's exactly what they're trying to scare us away from. Yeah. Well, I also think people because of how the Kanye West situation has played out, most people are going to be focusing on the outlandish stuff. Right. And, and not yeah, I'm glad you said that the aspects of it. 
um, that actually matter. And, and this is troubling to me. So for example, you know, the most, the, there was a three hour interview that Kanye West did with Alex Jones, uh, the other day. And the most talked about, uh, quote of Kanye's from that is where he uh, appears to be praising Hitler, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to defend that, obviously, but what I am going to point out is that at the same time, we send how many billions of dollars to Ukraine to support right. people fighting in that war uh, that praise Hitler much more in a much more overt and consistent way mm-hmm. than Kanye West did on the Alex Jones program. Right. Um, you know, it's it's uh, that particular, uh, you know, outrage uh, type of outrage over that type of of rhetoric is either is only highlighted, in my opinion, when it's, uh, you know, serves a particular agenda. Mm-hmm. So I think you see sort of the self-destruction of Kanye West here, but I think it's also being uh, used for uh, other reasons, because, you know, like I just mentioned, um, Nazis in Ukraine are okay, but, you know, Nazis elsewhere are not okay. And nationalism and extreme ethnic nationalism is okay in Israel, but is bad everywhere else. Right. Right. And I, I think there's, and, there's a Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I just think these extreme double standards need to be scrutinized um, because it's, uh, you know, people can point out the hypocrisy, but there's something else going on there, too. 100%. I mean, there's a lot of different factors at play, but I think the important parts to, to include there for is, you know, obviously, as I made, as I keep pointing out, regardless of your opinions about what he is saying, does he have a right to say these things? Obviously, if you don't defend the most appalling of the speech, you don't believe in free speech. But we have a right to argue that if you feel that way, that he's wrong or disgusting or whatever you may think, right? That's free speech. But what's in, interesting you point out there is, you know, there, like, and, and this is kind of, people even criticized our coverage of it from yesterday for the same reason. And it's a fair point. My point yesterday was more about defending the free speech aspect than going into the actual nuance of his conversation. But since we're talking about it, you know, there was a lot of things that he said there that I would even argue like my sense of this is it feels like this is being set there, whether they know it or not, to to divide people in the actual conversation of free speech, like always divide and conquer. But that it's almost being used to give objectivity a bad name. Right. And the point being is that he said, say, like, you know, we I love everybody or there's good things to everybody. And I think that is almost meant to overlap with Trump's comments about, you know, good people on all sides kind of a thing. But, you know, then he goes and says, you know, specifics about, you know, Hitler did this or whatever. And the point is that you, you it's it's when you highlight the one exact point, you can make it seem far more radicalized than other, you know, whatever. But the bottom line is that he did say things that I personally disagree with, but it really doesn't matter because it comes down to the fact that he has a right to say them and words are not violence. Right. But it's all being used to drive a very clear direction. And I think it's meant to overlap with this whole which I've called, you know, the vanilla ISIS psyop or creating the idea that these people are exactly what many of them have always thought they were because of the propaganda. Now, I don't know if they know that or not. Right. But that's happening. Yeah. So the whole vanilla ISIS thing uh, is, you know, as we've talked about and as I've written, you know, for your site, the war on domestic terror is basically that that Mm -hmm. is the narrative that it's vanilla ISIS, meaning uh, white people, ISIS this time. Right. And the narrative has been that it's anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic Trump supporters, uh, that are going to be the quote unquote domestic terrorists. Um, so at the same time, then you have, uh, the inter, the, the cross pollination 
between these groups, Nazi groups that are being funded with U.S. money in Ukraine, like the Azov Battalion being the most well-known. Mm -hmm. uh, they they cross-pollinate with groups in the U.S. And the FBI knows this. Uh, they've known it for years and nothing is done about it. Right. Okay. So if you are familiar with uh, the history of Al-Qaeda uh, or even the history of ISIS, which is sort of, you know, uh, the second Middle East boogeyman that was uh, has similar uh, roots in a sense to Al-Qaeda, um, which, uh, you know, the official narrative of that is complete bunk. You know, I, I think the easiest way for people to get a handle on that is to watch the recent uh, documentaries that James Corbett has put out on yes. the topic if you want, you know, a crash course in that. Um, but it's, uh, you know, that... Uh, was created for very specific purposes, i.e. the quote-unquote war on terror. And the war on domestic terror is no different. Even going back to the Oklahoma City bombing, which, again, if you look at the actual events around that, the official story is bunk. There's no way Timothy McVeigh did that alone. There was involvement of other actors, but the narrative was dangerous uh, veterans, uh, militias are dangerous, um, you know, and, and these sovereign citizen movement, all that stuff that was all sort of blamed on them. And there was an effort to create domestic terror legislation at that time, which was actually introduced by Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And among other things, that particular piece of legislation wanted to give the president of the United States complete uh, autonomous authority to declare what groups and what people in the United States are terrorists. Right. Like he has unilateral authority to declare that. That was that bill. That Biden introduced. Um, it didn't pass, obviously, but it's very interesting that you have Biden in power right now um, when a lot of this stuff is coming uh, to a head. His, his executive order about domestic terrorism essentially is his, now he's president, now he just kind of writes it in as an executive order at the same point, right? Oh, right. Well, that, yeah, that tradition that sort of developed, especially since, you know, the uh, George W. Bush era of just legislating through executive order. Right. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. So there's that president that where he could, you know, develop that really any way he wants. I mean, who knows? Maybe that same type of policy will rear its head sooner rather than later um, with, with him as president. You know, that remains to be seen. But anyway, you know, you have that narrative being seeded way back in 1995. And since then, we've uh, had these events that have, you know, really popped, uh, you know, gotten a lot of mainstream media coverage, like the, the failure, uh, the failed attempt to kidnap uh, the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, mm -hmm. which has now basically been revealed to have been like a FBI setup. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and some of these other things like January 6th, of course, and it's involved, uh, the involvement of the FBI there and how they were being waved in and how um, people that I'm sure we'll talk about again today at DHS basically said this was going to happen a year uh, before it did and compared it to the next 9-11, we can't stop and it's going to happen and it's going to be like this before it happens. Um, you know, sort of like the new Pearl Harbor quotes that proliferated right. before 9-11. So, you know, if you're looking at the national security state and all of this, um, the domestic terror narrative, if you've been following it, uh, is is definitely painting a very specific picture and has been of what an alleged domestic terrorist looks like. Right. Right. And it seems like Kanye West and, you know, is is being he's also going around with Nick Fuentes. Right. Mm -hmm. I, it looks to me that these are going to be the new poster child uh, po children uh, for that particular narrative, regardless of how true or not true that is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And I, I and that's important that whether they know it or not, because I think that's kind of one of the ways these kind of plays work today. 
I like, you know, you could take Trump, for example. Like, I'm still debating on whether I feel like he's really aware of how he's being used in this or he's completely involved. And it could just be these people are being used, social engineering, however you want to discuss it. You know, they may not even realize they're playing these parts. Yeah. So let's turn back to Kanye for a second. So the most interesting thing about this whole situation to me was when he published those text messages uh, between him and his apparent personal trainer, mm -hmm. a guy named Harvey Pasternak. Yeah. Uh, who's ex-Canadian uh, military intelligence, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, very strange. Yes, and apparently, um, I forget where I read this, but I'm going to try and, and find it to put it in the show notes. Um, you know, it, it's important to point out that, you know, M MK Ultra, right, the program, I'm sure everyone's heard of it, um, that involved Can Canada and Canadian intelligence to a significant degree. And the claim has been made that, you know, these programs continue to exist to an extent maybe that's true and you know in the case of the cia and groups like that if they don't ever face accountability for something more likely than not they'll continue to do it oh yeah uh but you know i can't really give you i absolutely think it's continuing still i think most people you know in the space that <laughs> we work in probably do but again i can't uh provide direct evidence mm -hmm. for that yeah but right, this particular right. exchange of messages between Pasternak and Kanye West is quite revealing because this is supposed to be a guy who's a personal trainer, which you would, I, I think most people think of as the guy that like takes you to the gym and right. helps you like work out. And what he's saying instead is, I don't like what you've been saying. So you can either have a conversation with me or I'm going to have you institutionalized and drugged and send you back to zombie land forever. Right. That's, that's not a trainer. That's a handler. Yeah. So... That's a pretty crazy exchange. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think, it, okay, so if if he was being, you know, handled or whatever by this Pasternak guy from some time and spent times, you know, the way it was written, the message, he was basically saying this had been done to Kanye before. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just want to say that since the situation started and Kanye's come out and been saying this stuff. Uh, there's no way this is a guy that is like operating at a hundred percent right now. If he's been through some sort of crazy, like institutionalized drug thing and like all this other stuff, uh, with people that have intelligence ties sort of handling him, uh, you know, it's very likely that I don't really, I think he's being used, uh, mm -hmm. right now. I 100% agree with that. The, the, mm -hmm. But, but I, but I would, you know, and I know you would agree. I mean, I, we don't, who can say for sure whether, he, you know, I, I mean, he seems to know what he's saying. Like, if you just kind of watch his his dialogue, the yeah. The he, but here, here's my thing. Well, I just think if you're a guy who's like messed up like that, and you're trying to come out of it, who's the the people that are guiding him towards the answers that he's found right. to that he thinks explain his predicament? Right. Who are the people who are surrounding him right now as he's having this meltdown? It's a new group of people. Are these his new handlers? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's again, I don't I, it's hard to say, but I, I think it's clear. No, we don't know. But I think it's it's worth pointing out because I don't think, you know, I think they want someone like him out who's been through these experiences that maybe have given him, you know, problems. Right. And mm -hmm. like acting, quote unquote, normally, and they want to push him out there. They want to give him specific information and talking points and have him make a fool of himself. Right. Yeah, if, well, for I, example, Milo Yiannopoulos, or however you say his name, who I think, and Nick Fuentes, who were supposed to be, like, managing, quote-unquote, Kanye West's 
uh, supposed presidential campaign. Why would they not sit down with him and be like, if you want to actually do this, why don't you make um, a well-reasoned case uh, for why the U.S.-Israel relationship is messed up and needs to change? Well, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, from a political standpoint, obviously, like if you if you're actually trying to play the game. But what's interesting? But is, he's not trying to play the game, and neither are the people behind him. That's exactly, my point. exactly, exactly. And and what he's saying is, I mean, and it's important to point out that even though you can argue he has a right to say these things, there's ex endless examples of how they are being completely broad brushed or saying, you know, there's points where you're, he's saying Zionism, but there's also points where he's saying that Jewish people do this and so on. And you can't, no honest person can stand by a statement like that. It's broad brushing no matter what group you're talking about. Sure. Right. And so I would argue again with, I agree with you. I think it's, it's intentionally inflammatory to the point that where nobody honest can defend it. So I agree. I mean, that's why I feel the same way. I feel like this is a setup whether they know that or not. And I agree with yeah. you. I think that people alongside them, you know, these people aren't stupid. They're well aware of how these things are being subjectively presented, in my opinion. And I think you're right. I think there's a reason to it. My point was it's about the whole overlapping of words and violence, which Elon Musk just made clear personally. I think so. Yeah. So I, I am leaning towards um, the view that it is a setup. And, um, you know, I think Obviously, there's no intent to actually have any sort of uh, positive, productive, like nuanced discourse come out of this whole Kanye West situation. And right. I think that's because of the people that have been in his circle since he um, sort of left the Pasternak orbit then. And he's moved on, you know, to these other people who are around him constantly and arranging these interviews for him. That's not Kanye doing that himself. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Well, I mean, it's important to look at the the trainer handler, you know, and the whole situation itself, even before this point, and just, you know, I mean, it, what kind, what person can can have you involuntary, involuntarily committed, or argue that you'll be drugged if you do X, Y, and Z? Like, that's not normal, even for somebody in that position with, you know, with lots of money and so on. Like, we just need to see that for what it is first, and then realize that from there, it's only gotten more intense. You know, so just something is going on like this is clearly tipped yeah. and something's happening right now. What that is, we could all be guessing at, but it doesn't seem organic to me here. Yeah, I don't think it's organic either, because think about the early interviews he was doing mm -hmm. in, as this whole situation has developed. The earlier ones were very, very different than the one with Alec Jones recently. Right. Where he's like talking on an Elmo voice and like has makeshift puppets and stuff, and he has a ski mask on his face like he's a member of ISIS or something. Yeah, it's, it's meant to be outlandish. So what, my question is, how did he get from there, those early interviews, yeah, where mm -hmm. he, it, it was much more nuanced what he was saying. Not necessarily that I agree with everything, right? But it was much more nuanced compared to what was being said during the Alex Jones interview. Yeah. How well, how has that evolution happened? Because he's been around these particular people, Nick Fuentes and, and Milo. Sorry, I, I tend to say Milo sometimes because that's hmm. like the Ovaltine equivalent in Chile that my daughter's obsessed with. So I like to see it. <laughs> I think it's important to point out that, you know, that what, you know, again, this I, who knows if it's organic or not. However, it is or not. I don't think it is. It's being used in a way that's obvious. Right. Like what they're showing you right there to me is the pipeline, what they want you to think is the pipeline of radicalization, right? Here's what happens when yes. you look at the right talking points. You become more and more extreme. And the point is, I mean, I, I don't think it's organic, but just to play object objective on either side of this, you could argue that this is a person who's gotten so frustrated 
by the fact that nobody's hearing what he's saying. Oh, no one, everyone's out, you taking him out of context. And so he's become more and more, you know, everybody's okay. And I'm trying to be more like, but I don't, th that doesn't make sense, right? Because you don't end up going to a point, either he thought these things from the very beginning and he was being soft rolling them out or not. Either way, right now, this is a person who's making arguments that are subjective in a lot of different ways, you know, and that is not an intelligent argument. You can't broad brush these things. So I ultimately think it's being like you're saying that there's something coaxing this from behind right now, driving yes. this into action. And it's causing exactly what they want from a larger agenda standpoint that yeah. you've been calling out for three years. Yeah, there's something I definitely think at, at this point, there's something behind this evolution from point A to point B with point A being the early interviews and point B being the Alex Jones kerfuffle. Mm -hmm. um, and what I worry about now is what happens next. Right. Are they going to institutionalize him because he's too crazy? There have been calls for that on social media. Mm -hmm. People saying like he looks like he's going to shoot up a mall and stuff exactly. or that he's acting exactly. like a terrorist and oh. stuff. Well, I see, this is where I want to bring up the points. What, here's what's happening simultaneously is this, right? In Louisiana, a guy just got arrested under anti-terrorism laws for making a joke comparing the COVID-19 process to a zombie apocalypse. Arrested under anti-terrorism laws. Now, he got let go, but the people that arrested him got qualified immunity for some unknown reason. Nothing happened, right? In Germany, 91 people over the last so many weeks just got arrested, interrogated for hate speech. So there's this very clear shift even me personally, like my appeal for Twitter got denied during this amnesty process. And it, yet the new claim they gave me was hateful conduct and violence. But it was censored under medical misinformation, as you know, in the first place. So there's a, there's clearly some kind of shift happening about why, you know, into the words are violence realm. That, that's where I see this going. Now, if he is institutionalized for this, it will only divide things further. It's going to drive. I mean, I think what this has done, first of all, is divided very strongly right down the center of the free speech argument. Right. So now people yeah. are divided, but it's going to cause even more of that. And it, it may even create the very kind of civil war mindset that people are, you know, like that we know they're trying to initiate to point at. It's, I think I would argue. Yeah. I know. I, I believe that's and happening. What, what I want to bring up, too, and what I want to drive home during the course of this conversation is that the war on domestic terror, as designed, is a war based on pre-crime. Right. right. You and I have talked about this a lot. I reported a lot on this starting in 2019 when William Barr, attorney general under Trump, launched a pre-crime program. The justification for that being things like the El Paso shooting, which, as I noted in my previous reporting at the time at Mint Press, Bill Barr seemed to uh, miraculously predict <laughs> not that long before it happened uh, and that, you know, basically... Uh, that event happens and then manufactures consent for this uh, policy that he was already developing at the time he made this amazing prediction. Um, and then this program that came out of it is called Deep. And then around that same time, as you and I uh, have talked about before, uh, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner were pushing for the creation of HARPA, the health DARPA, the first program of which was going to be called Safe Homes, with Safe Homes being a very long acronym for something. Sorry, I do not remember it mm -hmm. off the top of my head. Um, but it was basically about data mining social media and using it, using AI to determine which accounts showed, quote unquote, early signs of neuropsychiatric violence with the aim of stopping mass shootings before they happen. And a lot of these mass shootings at the time were being framed as the work of white supremacists. Right. It's, a, it's an overlap of like social credit with 
medical pre-crime, regular pre-crime. Like, I mean, if you, I just don't see how people can't see how all of these agendas are converging in like one exact point right yeah. now. And it's so alarming. So that we have the Kanye West situation being at this point now, because of what's happened, very much uh, in line with the changes at Twitter right now. Mm -hmm. And then you think, you know, th the fact that social media is a key part of this whole war on domestic terror thing and that pre-crime is a is is a part of it and your speech is used to judge you as to whether you may or may not commit a violent crime in the future based on the speech you are saying. Mm -hmm. All of this stuff needs to be considered when we're talking about what's developing with Kanye West now. He is being made a fool of, yes, but he's also being made the poster child for something. Right. And it is a model that is going to be used to justify what happens to people after. Because ARPA, HARPA under Trump didn't happen. Yeah. But the same, the exact same entity was created under Biden. It's called ARPA-H. Right. ARPA-H, but it's still <laughs> the health... DARPA, HARPA. Yeah. They just moved the H to the end. I'm just laughing to sort of distance it. Yeah. And they exactly. framed it as being about cancer. Right? right. Right. But the same people that designed safe homes and HARPA uh, under the Trump administration uh, designed ARPA H, which is now there. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, no yeah. bueno. I'll just yeah. leave it there. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just laughing because it's, you know, it's it was such an obvious ploy to be like, we made up something new and it's totally not Trump's thing. It's a totally different word. You know, it's it's just funny. But but uh, the, it's so alarming to me, this overlap. Of, of, you know, what you're what we're talking about here is not just pre-crime, right? Because pre, I mean, it, it is pre-crime about, you know, there there's this person's violent and going to commit a mass shooting. But now we're seeing it kind of blend with the medical pre-crime, too, because they're framing this now as a medical health crisis, right? These people a are mental mentally health ill, crisis. right? But it's also overlapped with COVID because there's arguments about how this can affect your mental health. And I've seen numerous studies about this. So there's this huge kind of swinging thing that's undefined until they decide to really define it about how just there's this nebulous problem. And if people are predisposed to violence, it may make it worse. And all these conversations are being had. I want to point out on top of the German thing, the Louisiana thing that I just mentioned in New York City, as of the last week, they're now arguing in a really concerning way that they're going to start involuntarily committing people, homeless people, they argue, they frame it because they're a threat to themselves if they're mentally ill. And they're like, look, it's a it's a misconception. They need to be violent to be detained. But what I found really concerning is when you read through what they're talking about, like the actual legislation or the, the point they're writing out, it doesn't really mention homeless people. So they're using that as they frame it. Well, the homeless people are concerned, but all it really translates to is we're writing down that we have a right to involuntarily detain you if we decide you're a threat to yourself. And this is all happening simultaneously, right? So I, I think that's connected. And I think that's what all of this is about. And, and you're right. And I think he's being set up as the poster child. Yeah. So, well, to say the very least, we've already covered a lot of reasons why uh, this does no good. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, this whole thing as it's playing out right now and, and why it's really bad. And so I want to uh, turn right now to some of the other stuff that you and I have talked about a lot. And I sort of mentioned earlier. Um, well, actually, a, a couple things. So I want to talk about this lady, Elizabeth Newman. Uh, who you and I have talked a lot about. But I also want to uh, make some time to talk about the Anti-Defamation League, which is playing a big role in stuff going on here and what the deal is with them and why it is so bad and why it's an awful idea to have this be the organization that decides what's anti-Semitic and what isn't. 
um, and to be involved in drafting free speech stuff. One of the reasons being that it's essentially, and admitted by many objective sources even, uh, it functions as a lobbying arm of Israel's government. But there's right. other reasons that I want to get into about why it's uh, not good to have them in this particular role. Um, but first off, I want to talk about Elizabeth Newman. So I know that you have the clip and we can throw it in, in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth Newman was testifying at this uh, Senate hearing, I believe, in, in February 2020. Um, and the the name of the topic or the name of the hearing specifically was confronting the rise in anti-Semitic domestic terrorism. So at this point, um, even in the testimony, she the, there's really not that much evidence or examples of recent anti-Semitic, specifically anti-Semitic domestic terror. There was, I think, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting. And there was uh, a lot of talk from a particular rabbi claiming, talking about cyberbullying of his children. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. So those two things in and of themselves are rarely enough to prompt a congressional or Senate hearing. Uh, especially in a lot of the things that were referenced were the, the, the spate of mass shootings in 2019 that were around the William Barr uh, situation I just talked about. Uh, but none of those were anti-Semitic, right? They were framed in the media as white supremacists, but that's not the same thing. Right. And even that's very subjective on the way they frame these things, too, based on their perceived points. Yeah. So in this particular Senate hearing, and then she did another one in uh, 2021, I think, when she wasn't part of the Homeland Security anymore. I'm not. Uh, I'll have to check up on that. Uh, but she's been around in the media and been a big voice uh, claiming that uh, Trump pours fuel on the fire of the white supremacist movement and uh, has been setting a lot of narratives in, in, uh, about this for a long time. And it's worth pointing out um, that before she was in this DHS position, she worked at the Office of National Intelligence, which is, you know, the director of National Intelligence's office. Um, and of course, that would be the person who is not just, who is in, basically in charge of all 18 U.S. intelligence agencies, so the top spy in the country, the person that ostensibly oversees the CIA, the NSA, and all this stuff. Yeah. So I just want to point that out <laughs> before <laughs> we go intense. any further. Yeah. Um, because it's it seems pretty important. So, uh, yeah. So she ended up resigning in April, claiming that uh, the Trump administration and Trump is trying is, is taking steps that are making domestic extremism flourish in the U.S. And she voted for Biden, and she's talking about all sorts of things to justify her concerns. And she she harps on over and over again about anti-Semitic hate crimes, but again, doesn't really supply a lot of uh, examples about what those hate crimes are. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but in this recurring theme that we've been seeing, it's all related. There's so much focus, not just from Newman, but other people like her that say similar things on social media and social media censorship. Right. So again, I want people listening to this to understand that you can't really divorce the war on domestic terror in this whole, uh, you know, creation of this new terror boogeyman, vanilla ISIS, whatever it is, uh, you it is n you can't separate it from the social media discussion about censorship um, yeah. or monitoring or whatever. Yeah. So one of the things that we have focused on Newman for is what I mentioned a bit ago, her prediction that another 9-11 is building and we can see it coming, but we can't quite stop it. Uh, meaning, you know, if you're DHS and you, you know, or work with the intelligence agencies that surveil all the American public, if you see it happening and can't stop it, um, you know, it, you're probably letting it happen or you're going to plan it and then let it happen. Um, you know, but 
Yeah. I They obviously would not admit to that, but, you know, it, it's a very telling quote because this essentially comes to pass um, with January 6th, not that much later. And then after you have Newman statements, you have things like the Transition Integrity Project that predicted um, January 6th again before it happened in the same time frame, basically saying something was going to happen between Election Day and Inauguration Day that right. fits these same metrics, right? Yeah. And one of the top people at the Transition Integrity Project was another former DHS head, Michael Chertoff. Mm -hmm. So... You know, this is all worth paying attention to when you consider the facts about January 6th, um, that there are videos of people being waved in and that it was basically a setup to, you know, uh, create this whole narrative that there's violent domestic extremists that want to topple the government. I 100% I agree with that, that January 6th was meant to be something that, to be used that didn't, that I argued that people didn't take the bait on, didn't bring guns, didn't bring, you know, we have the Ray Epps point about you know, and it was very clear this was being coaxed. Or we have people from Antifa literally on video saying that they tricked people to go inside. And, you know, none of that's inside in the, the investigation, right? But there's another point to make here about, about Elizabeth Newman. And, and this is the point we made when we first discussed this. And again, I'll give a huge shout out to the, the election special that you that you set up for, for us on TLAV, right? That we did a three-part on. I mean, just so prescient. So many things in that were clear. It came to pass around COVID, around all of this. So I recommend people go back and check that out. But we discussed this, and the other point was, even in the way she says that, that we don't know how to stop it. Well, if they're breaking the law, then you'd be able to stop them, right? <laughs> so the point is, even as she made clear in the discussion, these people aren't breaking the rules. They're just finding ways to kind of wink, wink, say what they, you know, what we think they mean, but they're not actually violating the rules of social media. And her argument is, we don't know what to do with that. So their argument is, people aren't breaking the law or breaking the rules, but we think we know what they really mean, and we want to do something about that. So uh, we want see, new tools. That's part of her spiel there. Yes, meaning new, that new tools, they want to be able to go after people who are saying things they think are dangerous but aren't breaking any laws. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And and that's where we see that translate into today is that now they're just going well, you know. And and again, obviously Kanye is being inserted in this with the things he said to make the most extreme version of the point. But you got people like us that are going to say, well, here, the Israeli government just, you know, X, Y, and Z, this crime they committed, and then that gets translated to violence against Jewish people, right? And that's actually how this is happening right now. And it, it doesn't mean that there isn't actual violence or people that actually commit crimes, but we're being conflated from a high, you know, from every possible conversation right now to if you challenge the narrative, you're now a terrorist. And it's not that hard to see the connection with Biden's executive order and everything else we discussed. And it goes all the way back to what she said right there. I mean, it's all on the surface. Yeah. So and now that we've established the role of Elizabeth Newman here and sort of setting up this narrative, she was one of the top people at DHS, by the way, um, when this was going on, the Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention hmm. at DHS. Sounds yeah. like pre-crime right there. <laughs> yeah. So where is she working now? She is currently Chief Strategy Officer for Moonshot, which again, mm. remember, uh, Moonshot was also the term that was used for Biden uh, for uh, what is now ARPA-H. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the cancer moonshot. Oh, that's ARPA-H now. Because he framed it about being about cancer, but as I mentioned earlier, the same, the exact same initiative uh, was about social media pre-crime preventing violent crime and shootings before in terrorism, right? Before right. they can happen, which is, again is an outgrowth of this, uh, this stuff after 9-11, like total information awareness. Anyway, we'll get to that later. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the name's interesting. So what is Moonshot? According to her bio, it is a social enterprise working to end online harms, including violent extremism, 
disinformation uh, by applying evidence, ethics, and human rights, whatever that means on the last part. Um, and uh, so let's look at Moonshot for a bit. So there, it's not moonshot.com. It's moonshotteam.com if you want to go and, and check these guys out. Um, they are partnered with the UN, Facebook, Google, the British Home Office, the British Department for Homeland Security, the Australian Department of Home Affairs, and the Anti-Defamation League. Yeah, we'll come back to the ADL yeah. in a second. So uh, this is a pretty interesting company. I would encourage people to go through their sites. They have some pretty interesting case studies that they highlight here. Um, one is they were what contracted <laughs> by <laughs> Facebook to evaluate the performance of their search redirect program right. in the US and Australia. So one of the first case studies they profile on their website, this Moonshot company, they say Moonshot was contracted by Facebook to evaluate the performance of their search redirect program in the U.S. and Australia and make recommendations for future deployments. They claim that their that search redirect was designed to combat violent extremism in dangerous organizations by redirecting users who have entered uh, hate or violence-related search queries towards the education, towards educational resources and outreach groups. Hmm. Yeah? yeah. So, what did this actually look like? Um, and this is, uh, by the way, for people interested. If you go to Facebook's website and look for the redirect initiative, you can find some more uh, information about it here, and also about the the team up with Moonshot. But uh, people may remember. Um, not that long ago that Facebook, for example, was redirecting people who like false coronavirus information to the World Health Organization website. That's part of this redirect initiative they were involved in. So it's not just violent extremism, yeah? Right. And then last May, uh, Facebook uh, announced that it was going to take stronger action against people who repeatedly share information on the platform. And part of that was going to be that people who engage with the post will be redirected to something, uh, a more accurate source on the topic. And this wasn't just violent extremism, yeah? This was, uh, according to the article, COVID-19 vaccines and COVID-19 in general, climate change, elections, mm. or other topics. So right away, we can see that this has nothing to do with uh, violent extremism necessarily. Uh, this is being used, you know, as a, basically as a, a hammer to... Uh, go after right. go after everything, but it's uh it's complicated. Well, it's important to include the other angle to this, right? Which is, and this is the this is where it's getting more and more convoluted and more and more concerning for people like us who are just trying to objectively converse about these things. Is they've it's they they the way they've included these things under the guise of violence is now disinformation, as we've seen during COVID, equals violence or harm. Which then is violence, right? Ultimately, you're scaring people away from taking the injection or you're scaring people away from doing the right thing about climate change, whatever. And they argue that translates to people dying. Therefore, you're now a terrorist. And it's clumsy, but they're doing it. And that's why I feel like these are kind of patched together. And by the way, there's also the, the info interventions platform with Google, which is like the same exact thing. Have you seen that one? It's it's a new thing, but it's the same thing. It's a setup about redirecting people and, you know, having things show them about, you know, Basically, this, what do they call it? The pre-bunking, right? Have you heard, heard them talk about that? It's the same kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. One of the guys that was involved in, in setting the stage for that is actually one of the co-founders of this moonshot thing. Of course. Worked at the Google, <laughs> yeah, Google program to, to do this kind of stuff. 
Um, but anyway, so it's not just uh, big tech companies like Facebook. Yeah, it's also like the U.S. government. Uh, here they talk about one they did with the State Department where they worked with the U.S. Department of State to create, test, and build capacity for comedic content in Malaysia uh, that was, again, used the quote-unquote redirect method targeting audiences deemed at risk of violent Salafi jihadist extremism. And then uh, other corporations aside from the tech industry teaming up with Lloyd's, a massive uh, bank, uh, they selected Moonshot to join the Lloyd's Lab Innovation Accelerator to help better understand global geopolitical risk. And then nonprofits and the nonprofit, of course, who else would it be? They're partnered with the Anti-Defamation League to analyze U.S. search, search traffic in response to the threats posed by white supremacist narratives and ideology in the U.S. In the seventh-month period, Moonshot recorded uh, over 500,000 white supremacist searches and identified important trends that gave a fuller picture of the threats posed to at-risk audiences by this online community. Of course, the answer is more censorship. Um, and interestingly, they focus a lot of their attention on uh, not the big platforms, but uh, Gab, Telegram, uh, VK outlet, uh, uh, what's a truth social and getter and, you know, these other, you know, supposedly alternative ones, bit shoot is on here. I could have guessed. Um, yeah. Yeah. WeChat <laughs> also here. God. Um, and they, they operate in 30 languages and they operate in 60 countries. Um, so this is a very interesting group to look at. They definitely deserve, uh, some more of our attention, but a lot of work is going on, um, to set up these, uh, continual narratives about what constitutes a violent extremism or domestic violent extremism. So if you look at their most recent threat bulletin, which was for October, uh, not, so not that long ago. Um, these are the examples of the uh, domestic violent extremist trends here. So claims of election fraud, again, about 2020 or about wow. the recent midterms, are endemic in DVE, domestic violent extremist spaces, prompting a high volume of violent hostility towards Democrat politicians. So if you're really mad for the, at the Democratic Party or you think they, uh, you know, weren't exactly fair with some stuff in terms of the elections... Election fraud happens in the case to benefit both parties, depending on which period of U.S. history you're talking about or gerrymandering and all their sorts of stuff. Right. 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 Well, but what's um, the basis so, for that, though? Like, I mean, I, that, that's what I want people to think about. The basis is these half hearted psyop narratives like January 6th or cultural or the uh, cultural. Was that saying that correctly? Right. Uh, Hochul, I think. I'm not sure how to say it. Yeah, to if I'm saying correctly, the same point about her being, you know, was basically set up by the FBI. And the, the point the point is that these aren't sound. Like, where is the example of people who are questioning the election carrying out terrorist acts or so on? Like, I, I if unless inform me if I don't know about it. But the, how can you make this gigantic argument that people questioning elections, you know, while ignoring the Democrats doing so about the 2020, as I think you just said, it's just it's just silly. And the ADL is inherently anti-free speech and and biased. I mean, very clearly, whether you agree yeah. with them or not. But I mean, this this bulletin here. You know, this is involving top, uh, the top people, contractors to Silicon Valley and the government and groups like the ADL. So, you know, I want people to really pay attention to some of the stuff that's in here. So it's not just this claim claim of election fraud. You're inciting violence against Democrat politicians. Yeah. Hmm. Here's some other examples. 
Retracted PayPal misinformation policy sparks violent sentiment. Wow. <laughs> I'm actually pretty yeah. surprised about that. So the fact that PayPal retracted their misinformation policy where they're going to take $2,500 out of your PayPal account if they decide you have misinformation that was right. uh, even uh, criticized by former top executives at PayPal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is uh, deemed as sparking violent sentiment. It says violent threats and slurs are being directed at the company and its employees. So again, incitement wow. to violence. Wow. And then also claims the policy was developed in partnership with the Anti-Defamation League or prompting anti-Semitism and calls for violence against the ADL. All right. We're not going to stop there. Twitter being framed as a, quote, battleground of extremist beliefs, a space to spread extremist views to, quote, unquote, normies. Wow. Elon Musk takeover of Twitter is being celebrated by domestic violent extremists. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, let me, I'll, I'll comment anytime you want me to. I mean, every single one I no, can talk. No, no, Well, <laughs> the, the next one's a doozy too. So if you want to just go ahead and, and, and express your feelings. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Run up to the midterm witnesses first QAnon posts since June. Yeah. But here's the kicker. It's at the end of the paragraph. In broader domestic violent extremist spaces, Reactions to the drops are more mixed, with many alleging that QAnon is a, quote, psychological operation. What? Uh-oh, domestic violent extremists think QAnon is a PSYOP. That's not good. How does that even They say, isn't in? that insane? Yeah, like, but see, like, logically speaking, so you're saying, so these people are being radicalized by QAnon, which is one of their arguments, but yet people that don't believe it are also being radicalized. People that think it's a PSYOP are also, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, good, let's just cover all the bases, right? People that don't even know it exists are also being radicalized. How about you that? You have to think it's real, but bad. <laughs> yeah. It's just crazy. Or, yeah, I don't know. I mean, but the anyway, point is, and we can laugh about it because there's no logic to that. You're just making it both sides of the argument and saying, well, if it involves the Q discussion, you're being radicalized. And it's, it just doesn't make any sense. But it's the same point with all of this. You could play this game on anything the ADL talks about, in my opinion. Sorry, go ahead. I, I know you're well, making a point. Well, here's the last thing so we can bring everything mm -hmm. full circle. Threats against the Jewish community are at their highest levels in six months, increasing 29% compared to a three-month baseline. So before I go to the next part... They don't provide any information on how this threat level is calculated. Of course Or not. what they deem threats to be <laughs> um, or, you know, what the amount of threats actually is. Yeah, just right. the highest in six months. Anyway, after that, it says, comma, peaking on October 17th following a series of anti-Semitic social media remarks by rapper Kanye West. Mm. Of course. Well, and to your point before, it, it, there's plenty of things that are wrapped up in the argument of what's anti-Semitic that are provably not. At the very least, they, you know, like you said, the things that are like even arguably not or debatably white supremacist, but they call it that. And then it gets scooped up by the ADL in this list that they don't really define. Right. Now, to be clear, are there anti-Semitic people? Obviously. Are there racist people? Yes. The, but to just broad stroke all of these as what they want them to be and then not give you any metrics. The point is, if you say these things and go, well, prove what you're saying, ADL, they call you an anti-Semite. <laughs> right. It's a it's a it's the same game. It says there's no way to make these arguments or to try to defend or, or dispute what they're saying. It's it's a game that's being played. And to scoop in anti to Kanye West kind of makes our point, doesn't it? That this is being used. Yes, it's definitely being used. Yeah. Because why else would this these people like be bringing it up and focusing on it, highlighting it out of the biggest domestic right. terrorist threats in the month of October? Right. Um, a major contractor for uh, multiple governments uh, of Silicon Valley 
and very powerful and, and heavily funded, quote unquote, nonprofits. You know, what scares me the most at this point is now, just hypothetically speaking, that this would be the perfect moment if I were an intelligent apparatus to execute some kind of a false flag to justify the entire thing and say, this is what his words just led to. There's your proof of words leading to violence and everything spins out of control. I hope that doesn't happen, but that's where this seems <laughs> to logically go. Well, since you and I have been watching this domestic domestic terror thing unfold, you know, for a long time, uh, you know, it seems almost inevitable it'll happen at some point, but right. we can't exactly pinpoint when it will happen. I guess we're all waiting for the next Elizabeth Newman to say, uh, we're seeing the next January 6th and we're seeing it build and we can't quite stop it until you give us the tools to arrest people for pre-crime. Right, right. <laughs> Which well, is, I would um, argue they don't even need the next Elizabeth Newman because that's the, what they need would be, I mean, like to, to the point we always make too, it doesn't even have to be manufactured. It could just be some random thing that happens and they no, go, No, I know, this I was just what... joking because oh, oh, like, I know, Elizabeth I know. Newman tipped us off that something yeah. was going to come soon about that whole <laughs> right, thing, right? right? So. Sorry, no, I, I knew, I was just building on. The, the point being that ultimately that we're it, everything's in place it doesn't even have to be something that's created it could just be waiting Rahm Emanuel style like what the, never let a good crisis go to waste suddenly this is what they want it to be right I mean and that's that's the scariest part about this is it's that simple and people that already want to agree with whatever they say is racist will jump on that bandwagon without even thinking twice yeah well let's keep in mind too that the rhetoric in this country about things like race and uh like white supremacy are mm. just like in some circles of the country are completely divorced from reality totally. there is a segment of the population that thinks every republican voter is a nazi Yes. And literally thinks that, which is actually pretty ridiculous to your point. It's it's absurd and disconnected from reality. It's absolutely. But it's not just Republicans either. Right. I mean, it's the same point they make about anybody who questions vaccine efficacy. Right. You're just suddenly a terrorist all of a sudden. And sure. It's, well, it's, re remember these stories. I don't know if other people do, but I'm sure you do, Ryan. Uh, in 2020, there were um, these claims that white supremacists were going to weaponize covid. That's right. And become biosecurity threats. Oh, right. That's they were, we're... going to like Nazis were going to start licking your doorknob to give you code. <laughs> it sounds insane now, but these were real headlines back well, in 2020. I'm actually really glad high. you brought that up. Th see, this is this is something you and I were talking about. And and I still think we're in on this track, the, the overlap of the vanilla ISIS and the covid narrative. And we were almost kind of there. Right. It's just become, you know, hate speech, misinformation from every possible angle. So it's interesting that that we, you know, that was the, the one of those earliest predictions that that was kind of going to overlap. What I actually thought was going to happen was going to be some kind of a bio attack and blamed on a foreign country working with the MAGA group or blah, blah, blah. Just guessing. But either way, this spins yeah, out. Yeah. It kind of leads in the same direction. So very interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. So there's been some weird overlap. And I think we've sort of referenced this a little bit earlier in the conversation, how there is this overlap between, quote unquote, white supremacy and, quote unquote, the anti-vaccine movement or COVID-19, you know, questioning the the official narrative and there's been articles like the one i have up right now and so it's called alt medicine but like alt spelled like alt dash right it's like alt dash medicine mm -hmm. uh and the subtitle is how the far right weaponizes vaccine hesitancy and uh it says alt medicine groups have managed to monetize their opposition to covid 19 vaccines so now we're got we've gone from alt right to alt medicine right but they're framing it in those same sort of metrics um, and I think most people like don't even understand what alt-right is supposed to mean. And so here, alt-medicine are people that don't um, necessarily <laughs> believe the official uh, narrative. And you're seeing, you know, like these laws in California, for example, where like if you don't toe the line and you're a doctor, you're like right. 
screwed basically. So you have to, you know, the, the state decides what is, you know, the science basically yeah. at Canada, that point. Canada similar. There's it's happening yeah, a lot I think, of places. I think British Columbia passed, passed yeah. something too. Bill 36. And yeah. uh, this particular article accuses the quote unquote anti-vaccine movement and specifically uh, refers to people, uh, organizations like Children's Health Defense. Uh, they say they dab in extremist hatred, <laughs> including, let's see, uh, here's a here's a couple sentences from this article. It says, however, once the anti-mask protests of 2020 uh, evolved into the anti-vaccination protests of 2021, the far right has managed to successfully groom traditional anti-vax communities, turning a public health concern into a political problem of far-right extremism. Wow. This anti-vax, anti-government, far-right nationalist protest medley <laughs> is evident anywhere from Canada to Australia where COVID-19 anti-lockdown protests have turned to violence and conspiracy-driven anti-Semitism. Wow. How does that even get roped in? Because they say in France, the ubiquitous yellow stars used by protesters uh. to denounce that unvaccinated status became a stark reminder of how the pain of Holocaust survivors can be easily appropriated. But I'm sure they won't reference uh, Vera Sharov there, right. who's a very outspoken Holocaust survivor about the parallels um, of what uh, the civil rights abuses that we saw in COVID-19 with what she experienced uh, in her younger life. The, so, can I make you know, a point this about is, that? The, yeah, the star sure. real quick. I mean, th this is the fundamental kind of like juvenile, at, whether or maybe just ignorance of the corporate media. You're going to fundamentally choose to misunderstand or actually misunderstand the whole premise of why they're wearing that star, right? You just argue that it's anti-Semitic because they're doing so. But their entire point is that they are all the ones being persecuted and they're uh, so essentially aligning with the history of that idea. Like it just, it doesn't, it's counterintuitive. Like they don't, the point is their audience doesn't care. They're so dumbed down and willing to gobble up whatever they put in front of them. They don't even realize their own point proves that they're wrong. I just think that's incredible. It's just a little microcosm of the conversation, but yeah. But if you're looking at this on the broader agenda, you see how the war on domestic terror is not about white supremacism, like we've been told, and it's not about right. anti-Semitism, like they like to say. It's really they'll look for any way, like this rather creative quote unquote article I was just reading from. From anything they don't like, any ideology, they will find a way to make it fit into their narrative of these are dangerous domestic terrorists that threaten the public good or right. public health or you know well think of how whatever terribly that aged right that's what 2021 that article look at where we are right now whether lockdowns yeah. were clearly bad or the injections are clearly hurting people like people like maholtra standing up everyone's kind of now starting to go i'm sorry i made a mistake these are bad and yet that's still their article. amnesty says the atlantic yeah, right. Exactly. Please, for, for, let's just all forget and move forward. It's like, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. But again, returning to what we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. So if far right extremism is bad, why can't we talk about people like the Merkahane followers and the Jewish power party? Right. About, exactly. About to become in charge of uh, the state of Israel. Right. Well, I mean, the important point to make is that these the leading human rights organizations in the world are outspokenly calling them an apartheid state. That Selim literally says they're a Jewish supremacy government. I mean, that's their terms as leading human rights organizations. So you can't call these anti-Semitic when you're coming from a point of that they're oppressing people and it's coming from an apartheid state position. And then the point about the ADL openly, and it's not just the Jewish power party, it's the one that I can remember off the top of my head, but there's other groups involved, you may probably know, the other groups alongside this this current coalition that have been elected that are like deemed racist and extremist even by these jewish groups 
And yet now they've been elected and that's we're not allowed to point that out. I mean, and you overlap that with the hypothetical, right? You can say that wink, wink, here's what he really means over here in the U.S. when he says X, Y, and Z. But it's still, even if they're, tr even if that's true, it's still, you know, convoluted. Over here, they're outwardly saying these things and we're not allowed to point that out. I think that's what you're saying, right? I mean, it's just, it's inherently contradictory. And why doesn't the ADL say that? Why isn't that what they're focusing on? You know, it's, it's yeah. bias. So I think now's probably a good time to talk a little bit about the Anti-Defamation League, its roots, and 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 why mm -hmm. it's not a good organization to have here. But in before we get to that point, the ADL, if you look at their website and you type in nationalism, you're going to get a lot about how all ethnic nationalism is bad. White nationalism mm -hmm. is awful. Black nationalism is awful, and so on and so forth, right? Um, but if you look up Zionism, yeah, and their complaints about how, you know, they allege that anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are one and the same, yeah? They will say, how do they define Zionism? Oh, well, it's just Jewish nationalism. So Jewish nationalism is okay, right. but every other type of nationalism is not. If you're against ethnic nationalism, you should be against all forms of ethnic nationalism. Right. Otherwise, you are supporting one ethnic na nationalism over all of that, and that's technically ethnic supremacism, isn't it, Ryan? Yes, yes. Or, but so out of curiosity, how do they rope in Ukrainian nationalism in this conversation today? They probably don't have a part on right. the website about that. <laughs> Which is such a um, huge, big, you know, elephant in the room in the conversation, especially since... You know what a bigger bigger elephant in the room is? Why mm -hmm. has Israel's government funded Azov Battalion? And exactly. That's exactly where I was going with that. In 2018, Haaretz even wrote about that, where their own people were like, stop funding Nazis. <laughs> and now they act like that's not what's really happening. It's, it's cur what it currently is, as you know. It's incredible. So anyway, the Anti-Defamation League, who's, who's really behind them? Who funds them? Where do they come from? Their parent organization is B'nai B'rith. If you mm -hmm. um, have read or plan to read um, my books, uh, One Nation Under Blackmail, you will learn about B'nai B'rith to an extent. Uh, B'nai B'rith uh, was founded in like the, the 19th century. Um, it is basically follows the same model as Freemasonry, but is a Jewish fraternal organization, uh, but also admittedly a secret society. And I mean, if you go through the, the New York Times archive, you will find, um, you know, articles in B'nai B'rith from like the 1870s and stuff that openly call it a secret society and what have you. Um, and, you know, sort of talk about the founders and it just like, you know, Freemasonry, it has different lodges and all of that. The first of which were, you know, in sort of the New England area and have expanded across the country since then. Um, and they come up in the book a lot because a lot of the people I end up writing about in the book are involved with B'nai B'rith or on their board of overseers. And a lot of these people that are on their board of overseers are people that are provably, as I note in the book, tied up with organized crime, intelligence, or both. Hmm. Um, so, you know, if you want the details on that, I'll, I'll refer you to the books to not take up too much time here today. But the Anti-Defamation League is an outgrowth of that that was created in the early 20th century as a result of the fallout, or rather the lynching of a man named Leo Frank. Leo Frank was lynched after he was found, um, well, after he didn't go to prison for the uh, murder, in, or rather apparent rape and murder of an underage girl uh, that I believe worked in the factory he either owned or managed. Um, that entire trial is insane um, and really crazy stuff. So, you know, there's been a lot to sort of try and sanitize the details of that over the years. Um, but I would encourage people to try and find the primary source stuff about that trial. Um, 
and, uh, you know, why things happened the way they did. But basically, the local community felt like felt like Leo Frank was guilty. Um, and there were lots of reasons that came out in the trial to think he was guilty, regardless of how you feel about the particular event or the particular people involved. You know, so that but the claim from the ADL is that this effort to go after Frank wasn't because the community felt like a guilty murderer and pedophile um, got off, you know, easy because of his powerful connections because he was a Benibrith member. Right. Right. Um, you know, it, it's been claimed that it was anti-Semitism and there's been movies that have been made with financing from some of these networks to sort of paint Leo Frank as the victim here. Right. Right. Um, but anyway, that's sort of the whole situation uh, that led Benibrith to create the Anti-Defamation League. Right. So the Anti-Defamation League, you know, frames itself as, as defending against, you know, not just, you know, uh, defamation of the Jewish community, but all sorts of different communities. Um, but it's, again, important to look at who funds it. And if you look at the people that have historically been funding it, it's uh, the Bronfman family. Uh, Leslie Wexner is historically a big funder of it and, mm -hmm. and, you know, people sort of in those, um, those networks. Yeah. Right. So here's the problem. Um, as I see it, if you're like me and you want to write a, a book about someone like Jeffrey Epstein and his connections, and you end up talking about the Bronfman family, for example, who have provable ties to organized crime and lots of sus activity over the years. Um, so I make criticisms that are fact-based and reasonable about the Bronfman family and the ADL can come in and call me an anti-Semite. Right. Even people that were Jewish that have, uh, been, that have written about the Bronfman family in the past were called anti-Semitic by the Bronfmans or they were called <laughs> self-hating Jews or, you know, stuff like this. Yeah. Right, right. But essentially the ADL comes in to, uh, help defend interests or people who are tied to its funders, just like a lot of other organizations. I don't think that's exclusive uh, to the ADL. But the problem is when you conflate someone who is actually involved in crime and reporting on their provable involvement in crimes to anti-Semitism, you are essentially conflating the activities of this criminal who happens to be Jewish to the entire Jewish community. Right. Great point. Which is, they're essentially doing what they claim. Which by itself is creating anti-Semitism, isn't right. it? Right, right, exactly. And which could very well be by design, but you're not allowed to say things like that either, because you, you're insinuating that they may do that would be anti-Semitism. It's everything they can claim. Well, so in my opinion, the ADL conflates, uses anti-Semitism to its advantage in that yeah, sense. Absolutely. So maybe it will on occasions point out real troubling examples of anti-Semitism, and other times it will conflate anti-Zionist rhetoric, which is fundamentally political and not racist. There are yeah. anti-Semitic Jews, for example, and right, a significant right. community of anti-Zionist anti Jews. And actually, before World War II, most Jews were anti-Zionist. Right. So it's not, anti-Zionism is not inherently anti-Semitic at all. Well, exactly. But you could make examples of this about how contradictory they are or inherently hypocritical. I mean, I personally think this is an entity that is doing things for political reasons and not necessarily even maybe at all about defending an, a certain group. I mean, you could point out that they'll openly say that, well, Zelensky's Jewish, therefore he's not what you say he is. How can you even make an argument like that with what the history we already know? Like, th there are examples of Jewish people working with the Nazis. Like, it's just so silly that you could make that kind of broad argument. Or what about the Ethiopian Jewish population that get openly segregated, you know, attacked and like, you know, there's just no consistency to their argument. Right. But the, the one of the things that I think is interesting today to overlap this with the fact that they 
are really more about controlling a narrative than actually defending the reality or facts is, I don't know if you saw this new documentary that came out on Netflix. It actually came out today or yesterday. I, I don't it's have called, Netflix. Well, it's Sorry. called Farha. And it's and apparently Israel is just completely worked up about it, calling it all, like literally it, it shows, in my opinion, and I've touched base with a few people that, you know, really understand the history. They think it was really well done, that it really does show. The, is it about the Nakba or something? Yeah, exactly. It was about okay. what happened to the Palestinians. And and the problem is that they're acting like it's fake, but the stuff they show in the doc documentary is literally still happening today. You know, and it's so, so they're coming out and attacking this as anti-Semitic and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you can provably show that this is even currently still happening. So it's just there's no consistency. There's no facts in this. In my opinion, it's really just about controlling a narrative. And, you know, you could argue that there are people that work with the organization that try to do some good. You know, I don't know if I can prove that. But ultimately, that's something you could say about any of these organizations, even something like a foreign policy group. But to the point, these people don't have the interest of a, a group in mind, in my opinion. I think it's about selling us on the idea that, what they want us to think is racist when they want us to, to X, Y, and Z, what we're talking about today, create words or violence, right? To make yeah, it simple. Yeah, well, the, the billionaires and, and the people like the Bronfmans, the Wexners, and, and, and some of these people I talk about in the book that are, that are major funders of the ADL, mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the other organizations they've created, like Birthright, for example, or mm -hmm. the Mega Group or things like this, what they're most, uh, a lot of their quote-unquote philanthropy is focused on instilling Jewish Americans and also Israeli Jews with this particular uh, political um, identity. And a lot of it uh, for these guys, uh, these funders of the ADL uh, that I'm talking about here, is is very much extreme pro-Zionism, uh, right. very extreme ethnic nationalism, ultimately, at the end of the day. Um, and you even have you know key members of this of this group here, like Michael Steinhardt, saying things like, I think that he he's an atheist, uh, but he says Jews need to replace their religion with Zionism, worship of the state of Israel. Right. And you have these politicians coming to power right now that, you know, uh, since Likud has been in power on, an, you know, more or less since the 70s or so, uh, a lot of people have pointed out that the right has really dominated Israeli pol political discourse for a very long time. But the current group to come to power is even more to the right of of that paradigm alarmingly right? so and significantly yeah. so yeah yeah I, I was gonna say i really hope people take the time to look into that specifically because we could do an entire show on the the outwardly spoken extremist perspectives of the people that are currently in power in, in israel more so than we've seen before like you can show videos of that in the past but this is a whole nother level it's like we pointed out, even these groups that are pointing out racism elsewhere have in the past called these groups themselves like borderline terrorists. I mean, it's just incredible this gets voted in. I mean, again, I, I put the caveat in if that's really what happened. I doubt whether I tend to question most of these democracies today personally, but that's another discussion. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't really know the situation there because, again, I don't I don't really follow geopolitics as closely as I, as I used to because of everything that's gone on in the past couple of years. And, you know, sort yeah. of the arc that my work has sort of um has sort of taken, but as I see it, the ADL is sort of there um, to shepherd speech uh, with a particular political agenda behind it. Absolutely. And a part of this political agenda is laundering the reputations and protecting criticism of powerful actors who engage in criminal activity, whether that are, uh, you know, people in Israeli intelligence or whether it's, you know, people like the Bronfmans and people like that. And it's creating an, an atmosphere where, legitimate criticism of of them is you know deemed racist right and it's not what's racist is to say that people that are basically in the the uh, 
the remnants of what was once the Jewish mob, the successors to people like Mayor Lansky and whatever, that calling them out for engaging in criminal activity is, uh, you know, conflating people like that with regular Jewish people. Right. Which in and of itself is racist. <laughs> which is that, kind that's, of... what, that's what they do, though. Yeah. That's exactly. what they do. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I don't know what else you want to cover today, but I did really quickly want to want to make a uh, return sort of to what we were discussing in the be beginning and make a point that um, if this was not about setting up Kanye West for complete destruction and to further this particular narrative we've been talking about today, uh, there is a very nuanced case to make that from the conservative side that criticizes the U.S. Uh, relationship with Israel and, uh, you know, Zionism in its influence on American foreign policy and, and, and even domestic policy yeah. um, in the United States. And I just, you know, for people that are listening, I just think it's important to, to point out some of these key points. And one of the, uh, I think, most important points out of this is it is documented that as part of the U.S. special relationship, quote unquote, between the U.S. and Israel, uh, the U.S. provides Israel with sensitive U.S. military technology. Since the 90s, people in the U.S. national security state, the early 90s, have been going off on how Israel has been sending all of that tech stuff to China mm -hmm. to undermine our U.S. national security. Then you have the case of the Promise software scandal, confirmed Israeli intelligence even involved Robert Maxwell, uh, put back doors into sensitive U.S. nuclear net laboratories, install nuclear research. You have that happening, uh, it, it involved the same Israeli intelligence network responsible for Jonathan Pollard. Uh, there is a, a numerous cases of Israeli intelligence engaging in espionage against the U.S. national security state and then using that sensitive stolen data and, and giving it to our ostensible adversaries. If you are a conservative concerned about the rise of China and the, these types of things, um, you have to look at this stuff. You can't look away from it, but for some reason... You know, people do. Are we going to subsidize the Israeli military when they're undermining U.S. national security? Right. Are we going to continue to subsidize not just their uh, military, but also they get lots of other subsidies from the U.S. Uh, from their uh, for like economic stuff and industry and what that. But they have a standard of living that's comparable to the Netherlands. Why are we pouring billions over there? Exactly. Still, you know, right. so I mean, from a conservative standpoint, there's a lot to criticize. And if the people around Kanye West were, quote unquote, serious about starting a real conversation about some of the issues here, they would calculate, make calculated moves like any political campaign, right? You sit mm -hmm. down, you talk about the talking points, you plan them out, you plan out your PR and all of this stuff and people write speeches for you and set up talking points for you for interviews and whatever. And since he's had this quote unquote campaign staff, he's gone from, you know, uh, trying to have, you know, his version of a quote unquote normal conversation, I guess, uh, to, you know, having a ski mask on his head and, and talking to talking as a makeshift puppet in an Elmo voice on Alex Jones. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, let's not forget as well that, that Netanyahu during Trump's administration well, just his government, let's say, was was openly caught and covered by the corporate media for spying on Congress, like during, or excuse me, the White House. Yeah, the Stingray devices around the White House. Yeah. Right, right. And, and I mean, oh, was that? Did you did you include that? I guess if you, I missed it, if you no, did. no, no, I hadn't referenced it yet. Oh, okay, so. okay. No, and so that that's an important. I mean, it's incredible that that just got dismissed, right? Or I mean, any number of examples like that that show you that there's. I mean, here, you know what's a great example of the the ignorance around the China point is that the 
in the injections of warp speed from Trump's whole uh, warp speed, Operation Warp Speed, the co genetic code for that came directly from the Chinese through the two of Moderna and the rest of the companies through the genetic sequencing platform before they'd claimed they even isolated it. And yet the argument is China bad guy, and we're supposed to question what they're doing, yet the entire impetus for the entire program still rests on the genetic sequence coming from China. You know, the point is that the whole yeah. conservative mentality around China bad guy or how they perceive these things are, like we're pointing out, are based on talking points. And the reality of this is usually far more nuanced. And I think to your point about this is that if, until we're ready to have an actual conversation about these things, and we're only going to get the extremist sides being put forward by the manipulators, right? And you're right, though. Like, if, if they really wanted to make this an actual run, which I don't think they do, right? They would have they would have been more calculating about their moves here. And I think anybody honest can see that the way that this is being presented is, I mean, again, it's my opinion, but it seems meant to be inflammatory, right? And I think that's your whole point, that that wouldn't be the way you'd go about this if you were truly trying to inform people or actually run for a president a candidacy, you know? But I think it were being set up. I really do. Yeah. I mean, that's how it seems to me. And, you know, what I've talked about a lot, especially in the context of my book, is how government right now is organized crime. And it's transnational. Yes. Um, I talk a lot about in the book, for example, how there were uh, like Robert Maxwell, obviously, because of Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, Robert Maxwell, according to top people in the U.S. FBI, before he died, set into motion a global coalition of organized crime. He united uh, organized crime groups uh, all the way from Japan uh, to Eastern Europe, to the Middle East and Europe and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. credited with doing that. One of his key business partners was a guy named Simeon Mogilevich, who's Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. But this, of course, you know, was when the Soviet Union was still around. Mm -hmm. um, and he, Robert Maxwell, with Israel's approval, uh, got Mogilevich Israeli passports, which enabled him to take his organized crime activities, not just to Israel, but to the United States and beyond. Right. Allowed him to go global. Mm -hmm. Right. So... You know, if people want to talk about specifically conservatives about the U.S. having a deep state, Israel provably has the equivalent of that yep. in a huge way. Absolutely. And their involvement with some of these organized crime networks in Ukraine is considerable. So when people want to find um, answers as to why Zelensky is allowing Azov Battalion to operate, why Israel is giving you know, money to Azov Battalion, all of this, you will probably find the answer in the fact that organized crime is in charge of multiple governments around the world. And, um, you know, yeah. uh, I don't think they want people looking into these types of networks, obviously. If not, they are organized crime entirely, right? I mean, I remember you and I talking about this, uh, you know, a while back and the interesting points about, you know, whether, whether you know, just for, and who, who knows if it's entirety or not, but whether at some point that, and, and this was all based on your research about the overlap of the Jewish mob at the time with, the, you know, the, the uh, during prohibition and there's overlaps and all these different timeframes about whether the organized crime essentially took over the government and just realized, well, hey, if we play the game the right way, we can just become government. And they're playing the same game. They're just better at it. You know? Yeah. And, and I think genuinely that's where we are today. You know, whether it's exactly that or not, it's they've essentially become that. But I, I, I wonder whether it is actually that, you know, and they just decided amongst themselves, 
we're just no longer going to tell on each other. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very interesting conversation. Yeah, I mean, and I, I know you do get into that in your book, right? I, I recommend people check that out if I haven't said that before. I think it's yeah. You know, no, I, I I do I do talk a lot about that stuff in the book, but you know, as I see it, it's not just you know this particular group that got in bed with intelligence and, and took over a lot of political power for itself has evolved over time. So originally it was sort of this national crime syndicate, as it was called, which was mostly a coming together of the Jewish mob and the Italian mafia. Mm-hmm. But you look at it over time, and most of the Italian mafia guys got taken out by none other than hmm, Rudy Giuliani uh, in the 1980s. <laughs> Interesting. And to me, that was consolidation of control. They framed right. it as the end of organized crime in the United States, and that's not the case. Because right, you right. have people, like I prove, basically, you know, I make a really convincing case, in my opinion, of course, um, <laughs> in the book, the people like Leslie Wexner, well, actually, in Leslie Wexner's case, it's a documented organized crime connection. He has yeah. documented ties to organized crime that you just can't. Uh, unless you want to say that like local police in Ohio and, you know, even beyond that at the state level are full of shit, you know, mm-hmm. they say that's it. That's not coming for me, you know. Uh, so, you know, the organized crime stuff is still around and yep. it's uh, definitely, you know, once enough Americans realize the government is organized crime, I feel like something has to happen. You know what I mean? But if we're going to cheapen the actual discourse and the actual reality to, you know, Kanye West going around and like screaming about stuff on Alex Jones's show, like no one's going to bother to engage with like actual uh, research about the powers that be. That's right. exactly what I think this is being done for. I And, and I, I know this is something that does, not everyone agrees with, but, you know, I've been saying this before COVID, but clearly through this whole illusion, I think things have shifted quite dramatically. And maybe it is just because of what you and I talked, you know, how clumsy this was and how it sort of forced people to realize that they're being lied to, whether Ukraine or any other thing we've seen since the beginning of this, but that that most people are seeing through this. And I think these are acts of desperation to try to shock people back into place. You know, like that. When's the last time we saw this kind of madness from all different angles? I mean, whether it's the Great Reset or COVID or Ukraine or Kanye, I mean, it's just everything spinning out of control. And we all feel that. But I think it's not. I mean, part of it is by design, I think, to drive people back into their place because people just aren't really buying everything right now. Even people that were moments ago buying things are kind of like, I'm just going to pause for a minute. You know, I'm not going to take that new booster. I don't know what's going on right now. People are listening more to people like you and information like this than ever before. That's what I think this is all meant to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's really possible. I mean, that's definitely possible. So really quick, I want to give a quick overview before we wrap up about some of Mm -hmm. this um, other stuff. You go a little farther back than we've already gone about the domestic terror stuff. Um, and, and where this all really comes from. So um, in the book, right, I write a lot about Iran-Contra and different parts of it and the particular power nexus that was responsible for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have people like Jeffrey Epstein and his crowd in that mix, and more specifically Robert Maxwell and that side of it. You have Israeli intelligence. You also have U.S. intelligence and the CIA. Um, and you have a lot of other actors. But the main players, you could probably argue our U.S. and Israeli intelligence, yeah? Mm-hmm. When Iran-Contra is going on, one of the key guys involved in it, who people are probably familiar with, Oliver North, uh, was testifying as part of the investigations into Iran-Contra, and he's asked essentially about the main core database. And then the line of questioning is shut down. Right. It's not allowed to be answered. Yep. So um, you can still the main core data... Well, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there's clips around mm-hmm. of, of that particular exchange, and, and they're very instructive about you know, what part of what was going on here. So basically main core was created between with the involvement of us intelligence and also Israeli intelligence. Yeah. Right. It was a creation of uh, a database of perceived dissidents 
American dissidents who had committed no crime. Yeah. But they were deemed unfriendly, quote unquote, and could be rounded up in the event of a vaguely defined national emergency. This is part of what is known as the continuity of government protocols. Right. Yeah. In the event that there's an attempt to overthrow the United States government, basically. Or, but I mean, you would assume it would be that, right? But no, it's also, uh, as they wrote it, um, if too many people protest against a U.S. military intervention abroad, wow. this can be activated. Yeah, you you and I have talked about this a few times, I think, and like, the you know, the Reagan shadow government overlap and, you know, how that played a part in this. And, you know, it's very... It's very interesting that there there's numerous times where this has been discussed, but I think it's most telling that this was briefly pointed at, I think, to continuity of government point during COVID, for example, or during a few different things. But the point that you make there about protesting foreign governments, I mean, we're seeing this happen all over where if you just pro like for here's a good overlap, like pointing out how CNN is calling the protests in China freedom fighters. But when we protest COVID lockdowns in this country, we're terrorists. You know, it's all subjective. And I think the real point is they can choose and pick and choose where and how they want to apply this, you know, and ultimately it just makes, you know, you're, if you are challenging the government narrative, you are on this list. I think that's pretty obviously clear today. And I think the problem is that it's already been exposed that a lot of media personalities and so on are on these kind of lists. And yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's. Yeah. So um, to follow that up, right. So main core never went away. It has uh, continued to be active. It's still active today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. During 9-11, it was seen uh, being accessed on White House computers. The last mainstream, well, I'd say rather mainstream adjacent reporting on main, uh, on main core was from like 2008. Um, and in that reporting, they basically talked about how main core had developed to uh, basically be, uh, it profiles Americans, right? But everything the NSA or other intelligence agencies have sucked out or all the data they've like, you know, uh, surveilled and obtained from you um, through illegal surveillance programs is under your profile, right? It's all there, like right. your financial activity, all your search history, whatever, all that stuff's on there, whether it comes from Facebook, Google, it doesn't really matter, right? It's all there. Okay. So, um, the the way to turn these masses of data into actionable intelligence and decide who gets into main core is not is Palantir. Yeah. Mm, Just Peter Thiel's company. Right. Um, but let's go back a second. So 9-11 happens, right? And there's, you know, this desire apparently uh, to use main core. And there's this previous agenda um, developed in the Reagan administration. There's obviously a lot of overlap between George W. Bush's administration and, and the Reagan era. Right. Um, to further this idea of domestic terror, pre-crime, stop terror before it starts, and so on. This led to the development of the Total Information Awareness Program at DARPA, which was going to be run by John Poindexter, who was one of the top co-conspirators in Iran-Contra, who was actually indicted and convicted, but of course pardoned by William Barr in 1991. So he didn't actually serve prison time, I don't believe. Uh, but anyway, he's the guy that decided to put in front of the in, in charge of this. What a coincidence, right? Right. And total information awareness is all about stopping uh, pre-crime, you know, stopping terrorist attacks before they happen. But not just that. There was, a, as we've talked about, a biosurveillance program that was about stopping pandemics before they happen. Wow. Right. So ahead of its time. Um, <laughs> not really. <laughs> just, what happened with COVID was just part of an older agenda, right? But right. um 
total information awareness gets shut down uh, because people point out it will end privacy in America and profile innocent Americans. And it's, you know, what a dictatorship would do. That doesn't stop them. Instead, Peter Thiel teams up with the CIA to resurrect it as Palantir. And one of the key people involved in that was Richard Pearl, Mm -hmm. who has a very complicated and very disturbing relationship with Israeli intelligence going back to, I believe, the 70s. And of course, he was in the Reagan administration in the Department of Defense at the time he was advising uh, Peter Thiel about this. And then Peter Thiel at the same time uh, develops and cr- helps uh, put Facebook on the map by give, by you know turning them into the corporation they are today, right. uh, becoming their f- first big funder, right? Which was uh, Facebook itself was a successor to a related DARPA program called LifeLog, right. which is also about profiling you and deciding how naughty you are, right? Exactly. So these agendas still exist. And this a desire, what we're seeing now. We talked about the more recent history of the domestic terror program in 2019 and pre-crime and HARPA and ARPA-H and all of that earlier. But this has been going on a very long time. You can arguably trace it even before the 80s, back to the Vietnam era, which actually Yasha Levine and Surveillance Valley does quite convincingly. Um, But there has been an effort by the national security state to use the same policies or really, uh, you know, dissident elimination programs that they initially have done, you know, in most cases have done abroad. The right. Phoenix program in Vietnam, Operation Condor in Latin America, the the quote unquote deep state, which I don't like that term, I prefer the national security state because it's more accurate, mm-hmm. um, have wanted to use that in America for a very long time. Right. They need the pretext to do it. They need people to think the threat is enough. And they need a certain amount, not the entire population, not even a majority, but a segment of the population to support them. And from what we've been talking about today, it seems like Kanye West, because of his visibility and, and now in, in recent iterations, the outrageousness of his behavior is going to be part of the pretext there. But I don't think it's going to necessarily be just him. But I think um, this is going to be utilized towards these ends however that develops remains to be seen but i would encourage people listening we should not be feeding the rhetoric about haha kanye west is so insane blah 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 there is obviously something that is using this for very sinister ends and we should be bringing attention to that information and to that into those agendas because it's intimately tied up with the efforts to completely eliminate free speech in the United States, particularly online, at least first, right? And then usher in uh, what they have been trying to do for decades now, a pre-crime system. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. And I mean, I would, I would argue just like with the Great Reset agenda that we've just re- reached this moment now where the technological advancements are enough to where they can execute these things. Like whether, you know, the total information surveillance and so on you know, was clearly continuing, but now they're at a point where this can be executed, I think, and, and achieved at a certain level that that weren't that wasn't possible then. Like going back to the Reagan administration, right? And so that's kind of where I think we are. And I think you're right. I think this is all being lined up perfectly. And and whether they know this or not are being used. And we just need to be very careful about that because these actions are being, you know, they're pointing at the comments of people and the the, the things they say alongside this as the bigger picture. And showing how people agree or don't agree, and this will be used against us very clearly, you know. And, and look, we, I'm, a, I'm a free speech absolutist, and I've made that clear. But it doesn't mean they still won't use that against us, right? So, and I'm, not, I, I, I'm absolutely against self censorship either. But this conversation is going to be used to censor your speech 
and you know we need to fight back against that so thank thank you for having this conversation today i think this is important yeah thanks for being here ryan so why don't you let uh people know where they can find you and follow your work oh uh, yeah this the the last american vagabond.com that's that's the the central hub for all of the you know whatever else you want we're, you know my daily wrap-up show now rebunked is now part of t lab we're doing the pirate stream uh pirate stream media discussion which you and i should talk more about but the 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 Everything you can find on T-Lab will be there, but we're on every possible channel out there, so check us out. And I know you've been censored a lot on Twitter. Do you want to share your current Twitter handle yeah. or any of uh, <laughs> your Telegram channel, anything anything like that? Since, you know, I, I know that you have expressed, like, since you've been deleted from a lot of the big platforms, people are like, T-Lab just disappeared, and you're like, no, I'm still here. Right. So right. Uh, do you have, like, a link tree that gets updated to where all the different stuff is? Anything like anything like that that you yeah. want to share? Yeah, so, well, same point. That's why I, I you know, try to make it as the lastamericanvagabond.com is the best place to go you'll find all the links to wherever we currently are that the pirate channels we're currently using uh, if you don't understand that just look up pirate hashtag pirate you know t-lab pirate streams and you'll understand what we're doing but uh yeah it's after hours live with the after hours like underscore live uh it's just one of, it's brian richmond's channel he's letting me use now but we're going pointing out right now how we're being just denied the appeal to our old plot you know old tla vagabond account so we'll see how that pans out but uh, Telegram, I believe, just, just search The Last American Vagabond on most of these platforms and it should pop up unless it's being suppressed. But anywhere else you look, you'll find it under that. But yeah, any, I think right now we should be doing our best to lean into alternative platforms, just on a side note. No, I definitely agree with that. Uh, and RSS feeds, if you're not familiar yeah. with that, take, yeah. a, take a look. That's uh, probably the, <laughs> the best, uh, you know, uh, best way to really develop your own news feed and not have to depend on a very corrupt social media company to do that for you. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. Somebody asked me to put that back on our website a long time ago, and I was like, "Really, RSS?" Like now, I'm realizing I'm glad we did because it's you know it's been there for so long. But a lot of people don't do that anymore. It's just like a direct feed right to your website. It's important. Yeah, so you can get like RSS feeders, and you can like put all the different RSS feeds from sites you follow, and it'll all be there. Right. It's very uh, very convenient. Definitely recommended. All right. So anyway, thanks again, Ryan, for being here. Probably a little longer than my usual podcast, but definitely an important conversation that needs to be had because so often these these distractions are out there to divert our way uh, uh, our attention away from things that really matter. But in this case, like we've talked about today, this seems like it's just a celebrity distraction maybe to some people, but there's really uh, a deeper agenda sort of hovering at least over this situation to an extent that definitely needs to be talked about and, and understood by as many people as possible, I would say. So if you found this information compelling, I would encourage those listening to share it, particularly once it becomes uh, publicly available, which is just a few days after we initially publish it first, which is, you know, for subscribers on Rockfin and, and elsewhere. Um, so thanks again to everyone that supports this podcast and catch you all next time.